This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Oru Kayak. They design folding kayaks that can go virtually anywhere thanks to their lightweight and folding design. Stay tuned for later in the episode. We talk again to Stephanie Wright, a member of the She Explores team, about the most magical place she has taken her Oru kayak so far. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. For most, the landscape is otherworldly. There's this stunted spruce that line the river valleys, but much of the landscape is above tree line, equivalent to about 10,000 feet in the Rockies. Tundra that supports a plethora of stunning wildflowers. Some birds travel thousands of miles to nest in this landscape. Large mammals, moose, caribou, grizzlies, and down mountain sheep somehow find a way to maintain an existence here where the ground lies frozen for nine months of the year. And then there's the whole geologic story itself, which is one where plate tectonics has played a significant role with a combination of geologic processes over the course of two billion years and where the actual remnants of the ice age are startlingly graphic. And that's why a base camp, which Camp Denali really is, that employs naturalist guides who are knowledgeable about the far north plays well in helping visitors both touch the ground and be able to understand this unique place. This is Jerry Cole. She's describing the Alaskan wilderness around Camp Denali, a series of lodges near Denali National Park. Camp Denali provides lodging and opportunities for active and immersive learning experiences for guests visiting the national park. Also baked into its mission is a stewardship for the land and the choice to maintain as light a footprint as possible on that land. Camp Denali is unique. It's a private, for-profit enterprise, yet its mission is very much in line with that of our national parks. Jerry Cole and her husband Wally bought Camp Denali in 1975, her daughter and daughter's husband maintain it today. Jerry just wrapped up a two-year tenure as the board president of Public Lands Alliance and remains on the board today. I asked Jerry to describe the mission of PLA. So the Public Lands Alliance is a consortium of nonprofit organizations whose missions embrace our national, natural, and cultural heritage through educational programs, interpretive products, and conservation initiatives advocacy, youth engagement, philanthropy. The Alliance serves as a national voice for these public lands partner organizations and engages in both helping them build their capacity in the operation of a nonprofit and in building effective private public partnerships. And it's a convener and thought leader on the national stage. Talking with Jerry, I was interested in the connection between public and private land, especially as it relates to her own experience. To boil down, Jerry says, It's because of my life experience that I felt I had some credibility to represent public-private partnerships writ large. Jerry's philosophy around conservation, be it public or private land, often comes down to experience. She believes that the only way people truly will want to protect land is if they have immersive experiences within that land. I hope in this episode, you'll learn how Jerry's adventurous life 
led her to becoming a steward of a landscape that she cares so deeply about. But in order to tell that story, first we have to go back to 1951, when Camp Denali was founded by its original three founders. The land that was homesteaded was envisioned by Camp Denali's founders as a really novel business venture. It was two miles outside the northwestern boundary of the park, very near the end of the 90-mile gravel, one-and-a-half-lane mountainous road, really remote, accessible only in the summer. Those three people were among Alaska's pioneering entrepreneurial spirits. One of these people was a World War II vet who had served with the 10th Mountain Division in Italy, turned National Park Ranger. That's Morton Wood. He went by the name of Woody. And then two, the two women, were former WASPs, Women's Air Force Service Pilots. Celia Hunter and Jenny Wood. So they had made their way to Alaska, and that's another story in itself. But once familiar with that national park region of Alaska, they hiked onto a ridge one summer day in 51 and discovered an exquisite nugget-shaped pond and wondered in the downpour if anybody could actually see Mount McKinley from there. And sometime later, the locally posted ranger sent word back to the park entrance on a postcard that simply said, wow. Needless to say, you could see Mount McKinley, which now goes by Denali. So they changed the trajectory of their lives. The vision that they shared was not to create hotel accommodations at the park entrance, which still represent the accommodations of choice by 99% of the park visitors. Instead, their post-war European travels inspired their model. It was namely the Scandinavian hut-style accommodations that they had encountered. It was a simple alternative to tent camping that did not detract from the wilderness kind of experience that people came to have in a park like this. After homesteading the land with the help of local miners, they actually bulldozed a three-quarters of a mile of road through the moist, soggy tundra up to this bench of land near the pond, which they affectionately named Nugget Pond, and began hauling their on their backs, literally on their backs, what their vehicles could not muster in that muck. Over the next 20 years, they went from wall tents to frame cabins with canvas walls and roofs to log and frame cabins that accommodated adventuresome visitors from literally from around the world. Later came backcountry guiding in this largely trailless national park and a couple of wilderness workshops during the summer which had a natural history learning component. So entrepreneurial at their beginning, the trio evolved a conservation ethic over time and established the first wide statewide conservation organization and Camp Denali evolved around a developing tradition of maintaining a light touch on the land. All the while, Jerry was growing up in Washington State. What was important about the way I grew up and how it related to how I have spent my adult years, I grew up in the Puget Sound area of Washington State, and our family camped. Part of it was economic in those days, but part of it was 
family trips that were saved up for to the Midwest, where both my parents were from and came from fairly large families who didn't travel. So in the in-between years of going to the Midwest, we went on camping trips into the Cascades because that's where we lived. And we didn't go for hiking. We really went for dipping our fishing poles into mountain stream for rainbow trout, which was more my dad's passion than anybody else's. Hiking was never part of the equation. My mom would get together all the gear and groceries. And then when my dad got home from work, we'd pack it into the car and then off we'd go into the great outdoors. The tents were made of smelly oiled green canvas and the parallel baffled air mattresses took forever to blow up and kept developing leaks. And our cotton filled sleeping bags with flannel linings got damp when it rained. We had a two burner Coleman stove that I always remember seemed to require more of dad's fiddling than anything else in order to keep it working. And I know I'm painting a dismal picture, but the two of us kids, rain or shine, it was heaven to be in the Cascade Mountains. So in high school, it came as a huge and exciting revelation that one could actually hike into the Cascades' pristine mountain lakes. Is that when you began to feel connected to the Cascades? Certainly connected to the outdoors, knowing then that it was going to be kind of an ingrained passion with me to be doing something outside of, of the metro areas of our country. You know, as a child, I had other notable influences. My grandparents on both sides of the family were Scandinavian immigrants who traveled far from home to make a new life in a tree with a new language. And they left home undoubtedly under some amount of economic duress, but they were also adventuresome to choose that route. And another really notable childhood experience was when I delved into the series of books by Laura Ingalls Wilder about this pioneering family that kept moving west at a time when the ability to be self-sufficient wasn't a choice, but you know, really a matter of survival. And I was really taken with the larger relevancy of that story. And, and I guess thought to myself, I must have thought to myself at the time, well, you know, if, if they could do something like that, well, you know, why can't I? I love reading those books, too. <laughs> so what, what did bring you to Alaska? Well, I was a year out of the University of Washington, and I was scheming to leave the big city and to do public health work in a third world country. At the time, I was pretty impatient with the Peace Corps application process and knew it was going to take six months longer to make that come to fruition and decided to instead take a summer job in Alaska with the notion to investigate the opportunities for public health work in the state's remote roadless communities. And that was the summer job that frankly altered my life. Is that when you met your husband? Oh, you know, you're pretty intuitive. It was when I met my husband, Wally Cole, who was managing the visitor services at what was then Mount McKinley National Park and hired me to establish a first aid station at the park entrance, among other duties. I was not looking for a husband. He was definitely looking for a wife at that point because he was five years older than I. <laughs> <laughs> we were married that December and made a permanent move to Alaska the next year, driving a new then Land Rover over the Alaska Highway in mid-December of 1968. 
I asked Jerry about where they moved to and what it was like. We went to the interior of Alaska near the entrance of Denali National Park, which was then Mount McKinley National Park, because it was a place we knew and we had connections. We were north of the Alaska Range, but about 10 miles south of the Arctic Circle. So picture that on the shortest day of the year, December 21st, we could actually still see the sun through a valley to the south for about 45 minutes. We were essentially roadless in the winter, but a local road ran 17 miles to the south to an Athabascan village and 11 miles north to the entrance of the park and the rail station. We did not end up cutting ourselves off totally from civilization during the wintertime. We had twice weekly train access for mail and weekly service to either Anchorage or Fairbanks by train. Fairbanks took four hours, Anchorage was an eight-hour trip. But our groceries arrived by freight train as case lots from a Seattle wholesaler. So I got used to ordering food by the case and would have a six-months-to-a-year supply of groceries on hand at any one time. And moose meat, of course, the local wildlife, was staple protein. And we did go to town, but I can remember when we went to town, meaning Fairbanks, or less frequently Anchorage, and that would only be once every, oh goodness, probably three months. I learned how to use produce very, very carefully. By the end of the time you were eating fresh vegetables, it was basically down to the cabbages. <laughs> I learned how to be pretty efficient with, <laughs> with fresh food. Oh, sure. Well, how else was life different than life in mainland U.S.? So back then in the late 60s, 70s, we lived in a 16 by 16 log cabin for about four years with minimal power generated by a diesel light plant. The cabin was dry. We hauled water from a nearby spring or melted snow and then hauled the gray water back outside. And there was a well-worn path to a log outhouse. And in that area, homeschooling at that time would have been the norm, although we did not have a family at, at that point. And in Bush, Alaska, most of the people living in those roadless areas in summer would have had to leave their homesteads to find work. But because we lived near a national park, we did not whether Wally was working for the organization that operated the visitor facilities at the park or working for the National Park Service, we had work where we did not have to leave home. Did that also help provide some community for you to feel less isolated out there? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because yes, it did. And most people, even that live in the bush, are probably living within a certain radius of at least two or three other families that they might have to go to by dog sled or snow machine to visit. But in our case, we did because we lived near a national park. We had a very small contingent of National Park Service families, as well as maybe three families that lived outside the park that were our community. I can remember very vividly the Thanksgivings that would be communal Thanksgivings up at the community center, which was then located inside the park that had been built for the National Park Service staff. We also celebrated Christmas Eve up there where Santa actually arrived by dog sled. 
Oh, nice. Oh, that's wonderful. Did living that way, like having, you know, a certain amount of food for six months living off the land, it really taught you how to conserve and to to not have a huge impact on the land around you. Yeah, definitely. Because you didn't waste anything. I mean, I learned early on, consider a piece of broccoli, right? Well, I learned early on that um, those broccoli stems could be cooked a little longer and used as well. (laughs) You made your own Christmas decorations. You did a lot of knitting. Things really didn't cut the mustard at 40 below zero. What year did the kids come along? We have two children. Our elder son was born in 1972, and his sister came along a couple of years later. When and why did you and your husband decide to purchase Camp Denali? And was it called that when you purchased it? So the biggest change to that national park, and and for us, was in 1972 when the park's highway opened, which today is the main arterial between Alaska's two cities. It connected then the national park community to an established community 20 miles north, which is where the local school is situated. But all that said, public power, think about it, public power did not arrive until the 90s. Wow. Yeah, that, that's like today. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so at this point in time, the Alaska Railroad still carries national park visitors, but Largely those who are on land-based extensions from cruise ships that are plying Alaska's inland waterway from the lower 48. And visitors also come, say, by bus, rental RV, or cars. So access to the park changed suddenly in 1972 as well. Keep in mind that the park has one 90-mile gravel road from its eastern boundary at the park's highway to what in 1972 was its northwestern boundary. And if you'll excuse me for a moment, I'm just going to delve into my oven, Gail. While Jerry grabs what's baking from her oven, that'll give us time for a quick word from our sponsor, Oru Kayak. Mostly, I use my Oru Kayak around Seattle. We have a lot of alpine lakes, and I live next to Green Lake. It's a city lake, and they're super easy to take there just after work or on the weekends. The folks at Orokak believe that connecting to nature is a deep human need, even for those of us who live in cities. Last episode, we talked to Stephanie Wright about how the Orokak helps her experience nature while living in urban Seattle. This time, she told me about escaping to Big Bend National Park with her friends. But the most epic place I've definitely taken my kayak is Big Bend National Park down in Texas. And The park is very deserted and isolated, and it's kind of hard to get to in general, but one of the more isolated parts is Boquillas Canyon and Santa Elena Canyon, and so we spent three days kayaking down the canyon on the very murky, muddy waters with these huge canyon walls on either side of us. It felt like we were going through a sleeping giant. It was just humongous, and the water was so calm, and it was quiet, and It was so nice to get away and get out there and be away from cell service. And we could pack our kayaks full of tents and food and drinks and everything that we needed for the next three days. It was really awesome to 
get to spend that time with my friends. Get off the grid in a beautiful, foldable Oru kayak. Learn more at www.orukayak.com. That's www.orukayak.com. Jerry's back and explains the significance of increased access to Denali National Park in 1972. That easy access with the main arterial that was created in 1972 brought a whole different visitation and it brought a whole different set of complications to park visitation. Consider that this easy access brought larger campers and motorhomes out onto the park road that had to jockey for space with the park's touring buses on that lane and a half wide mountainous gravel road. Eventually, private cars were eliminated in favor of a public transportation system. So what possessed us to become involved in Camp Denali? My husband knew Camp Denali's founders well from his earliest days at the park and our experience had been working with national park visitors who were normally on one-night stands with an eight-hour bus ride into the park, no real connection with the land. And at that point in our time in and around the park area, Camp Denali came into our ownership in the fall of '75. So we had we had a fair amount of time there to really get us to really get a feel for what the park visitor experienced in in this out-of-the-way national park. When we decided that we would like to make the interior of Alaska our home and the place where we would raise our two children, we wanted to incorporate something that had some mission that was relevant to the values and unique nature of this place. When the founders we're ready to move on to other passions in the land conservation arena and guided backpacking in the Brooks Range. We already knew where we would take their land conservation ethic and build around it an experiential education for-profit model. I think it's great that you took their mission and you decided to build off of it in a way that still continued to give back to the visitors to the park and to add to the park experience more than the one-night stand park experience. How do you feel that the mission of Camp Denali aligns with that of the National Park? The mission of the National Park Service, as many people know, and and frankly, many people do not, but it's one that has kind of a dichotomy in in its wording, is to both preserve unimpaired the natural and cultural resources and values of the national park system for the enjoyment, education, and inspiration of this and future generations. So it's important, we believe, first and foremost, to preserve unimpaired those natural and cultural resources, because without it, you can no longer enjoy and be educated about and be inspired by this kind of landscape. So our mission has always been aspiring to help the Park Service implement their vision in providing those active learning experiences and actually fostering stewardship of the natural world through a tradition of the 
unusual community that has evolved at Camp Denali with any group of guests that are there at a time with the excellence that we strive for and the sense of being in a a world-class natural setting. We are literally 28 miles as the crow flies from the top of the highest mountain in North America. It's got to be so beautiful. Oh, Ginny Wood, I remember her saying, she was one of the Camp Denali's co-founders. She said that in building Camp Denali, the land told us what we should be. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That's a great way to think about building any structure, though. It is, but it it, it takes a particular mindset. You know, I think that for the founders, it was... It was having experienced post-war Europe in their travels after World War II that really made them sensitive to the fact that money and growth and being as big as you can be wasn't what is going to really be satisfying individually in the end, nor was it, nor is it something that is going to be the best for the longevity of mankind. It's hard to make anything that's as stunning as the landscape around us as well. But it's easy to let ego make you think that you can. Back then, the founder's goal was to create a place for visitors that didn't care about luxury accommodations, but wanted to be close to the land with an accommodation style that didn't intrude on the extraordinary landscape any more than it had to. We're very fortunate that today... Our daughter and son-in-law, who now carry on Camp Denali's tradition, I found something that was written in the, in the current literature that put it this way. After two transitions in family ownership, they write, we uphold what we learned from our founders. To stay small, maintain a minimal footprint on the land, and provide hospitality to a level of comfort that still allows visitors to fully experience the wild nature of Denali National Park out their front doors. It's really wonderful. How do you think other hotels around other national parks could benefit from being more like Camp Denali? The question could be asked, well, do you think other hotels and national parks could benefit from Camp Denali's model? Yes. And I actually think that some of the large concessioner operated hoteliers are. The National Park Service is mandating it. The possibilities are out there. And some of these multinational, well, at least national corporations that run these park concessions and the hotels inside the parks, they want to be good stewards. But let's face it, it's harder to do on a massive scale. But the bottom line is commitment to sustainable practices, which in the end can add, not detract from the bottom line. And I think that one of the companies that has been front and center in its beginning attempts to share that worldview is Subaru America, which is engaging in a zero landfill initiative in the national park system, but obviously recognizing the value it has been to their company, pressing it to national parks to gain some public recognition before they take to a national scale. Yeah, and I think at least In my generation, a lot of the people that I talk to, we really care about these things, too. Like, thinking about it from a business perspective, like, I know that my boyfriend and I would be more likely to go to a place like Camp Denali. I I like to think that everyone's trending towards being more conscious of their footprint and 
the impact that they have, whether they're on vacation or not on vacation. Well, I think that's true. We have to make sure that enough of the people of your generation feel as you do. And I think what we fear for the national park system, for our public lands writ large, that there is a movement further away from that experiential kind of setting in nature as opposed to something that feels much more comfortable and less formidable. You know, a place like Camp Denali may suit your boyfriend and you, but it's not for everyone. And its for-profit model for active learning experiences is unique in the national park system. And so if this type of visitor service occurs in other national parks, often it's accomplished as a nonprofit field institute. Think the Yellowstone Institute, for instance. So as time goes on, I'm afraid that the experience offered by Camp Denali is a more adventuresome option than it was in its beginning. When travelers to Alaska were a more self-selected bunch who would more readily forsake modern conveniences for an authentic experience with the land. How can we make people more interested in, in having an experience like you would have at Camp Denali? Is that possible or is it, is it more cultural than personal? Just as my growing up experience gave me and my brother, frankly, an experience with natural landscapes and gave us the opportunity to be out in it and feel its significance that actually was a critically important thing to the way that we have both lived our lives in the end. It needs to start at a young age and it needs, so therefore all of the youth initiatives that are developed for uh, getting kids into parks, getting kids out into natural spaces, getting kids out even into their local city parks is essential, I think, in order to in order to make sure that we all in the next generation continue to value our public lands as a whole. And honestly, as kids, unless we can touch the earth, roll in the grass, listen to songbirds, sit in the shade of a tree, feel the wind and rain, know the colors of the sunset and the sunrise, sit in silence away from even the man-made frenzy of our noisy world. We're gonna, unless we can experience these things, we're gonna eventually cease to believe that untouched nature really needs to exist. So experience is key. Experience is key. The positive in that is that all it takes is the choice to go outside and and start to experience it if you if you didn't have that childhood that was as immersive as someone else's childhood might have been. Yeah, but you need role models there that helps you to say, hey, this is an okay thing to do. I remember I had served on the board of the Alaska Geographic, which is the nonprofit cooperating association that assists public lands in the state of Alaska. And there were kids that lived in Anchorage. And you think of Alaska as a whole, that it is all about mountains and scenery and outdoors, right? There are kids that were living in Anchorage that had never been off the concrete in in the city of Anchorage. And so going up to the BLM Outdoor Center, just three miles or less even, out of city center, downtown Anchorage, was a really scary experience for those kids.
So the longer you wait, as in, you know, in your childhood, your growing up years as an emerging adult, you, the longer you wait or don't know about that kind of an experience, the more you need a, a strong mentor that can say, this is a safe thing to do. We can do this. You can do this. And, and then help you along the way begin to appreciate what the natural world has to offer. And it's not that it can't be done. It's not that kids' lives are not changed monumentally as teenagers because of an exposure like that. But I think that we need a lot more opportunities for kids to have that kind of experience than what we are willing as a society to support. My talk with Jerry gave me a lot to think about how companies on private land can respect and uplift the missions of our public land organizations, how the way you grow up so impacts your relationship with the outdoors, how experience is key to stewardship, and how we all make choices every day when it comes to the footprint we leave on the earth. I hope you enjoyed meeting Jerry as much as I did. We'll list links to Camp Denali and Public Lands Alliance through the episode page on she-explores.com slash podcast. Big thanks to our sponsor, Oru Kayak. It takes a lot of work to make a podcast. The right sponsors make a world of difference. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to review on iTunes or wherever you stream podcasts. Music is by Ryan Little, Mind's Eye, and Chris Zabriskie. In two weeks, we'll talk with Erin Sullivan, the blogger behind Erin Outdoors, about the conscious changes she embraced to live a more adventurous life, and why she's so motivated to empower others to do the same. Until then, bye.